All right, we're getting started. We got babies here. We have dogs and coffee. This is exciting. It's good to see you guys this morning. We are in the book of Job. We're in our third week in the book of Job. Um, also note that the sun's going to move. So if it's the sun's kind of on you, it's probably going to go It's going to go that way. So you're going to be more in the shade if you're in the sun in the front. If you're in the back, it's going to move. I don't know. The sun just moves. <laughs> we're trying a different we're trying a different spot um, in terms of uh, the stage and trying something so you're not looking directly at the sun if you're looking at the stage. So we're going to keep experimenting. It's a church plant. We experiment. We try to figure things out, and um, hopefully God will continue to move as we uh, try different things. Um, we're into the poetry section of Job. So who's excited about poetry? Anybody? All right. Five of you. Fantastic. We are into poetry. So this is, I mean, Job is a difficult book, and then poetry is not easy to read. And I just want to tell you, you need poetry. You need poetry in your life. My Facebook profile says poetry. Um, you probably haven't written, who's written poetry before? Who's written poetry before? Within the last 10 years. All right. Fantastic. That is great to see. Because mo for most of you, you probably did poetry when you're in like third grade. And you wrote limericks um, and haikus. Um, and they're like, I don't know, iambic pentameter. But that's different. That's harder. Iambic pentameter is really hard. That's where the syllables have to make a certain sound. Um, and it gets quite complicated. because So poetry does have rules and conventions. And my purpose today is to give you a little bit of those conventions. But first, I just want to acknowledge that poetry is not easy to read. And for most of us, most of us are probably not regular readers of poetry. Um, and probably um, detest it a little bit. I mean, I remember even um, being in seminary, we didn't spend a lot of time on poetry, even though about a third of the Bible is poetry. And I think what's really difficult about poetry is that a lot of it isn't written in a factual way. Okay? It's not written in a factual way. And we're used to dealing with facts. Or we think we're used to dealing with facts, but uh, the, the way the Bible was written... A lot of it is meant to go beyond what's factual, okay? So it does describe something real, but it has a specific focus. And so what I'm trying to do today is give you kind of an introduction or a primer to what poetry is like, and specifically Hebrew poetry. That's what I'm going to talk about. And I also want to propose that um, you are more exposed to and have more experience with poetry than you think. Because anytime you sing a song, you're singing poetry. You're singing a poem. Every time you hear music with words, it's poetry, okay? Because there's a rhythm, and there's, a, there, there's often rhyming um, to the poem. And in fact, if you've been to church, you are exposed to poetry because we sing love songs to Jesus all the time. That's where the Jesus is my boyfriend songs come from. It's all poetry. It is all poetry. And so my definition of poetry today that you can work with is it is dense and heightened emotional expression. Okay, it is dense and heightened emotional expression. That's what poetry is, and the the benefit of poetry is uh, number one is kind of its density. And I've I've said this before, and I love I just love saying it. Um, there's one there's different ways you can say something. So for instance, you can say I can have a pattern of reckless and destructive behavior in romantic relationships, or you can say I came in like a wrecking ball. Okay, and they both have like a similar meaning, but the impact of saying wrecking ball is uh, in a way that's totally different from talking about having a reckless, having reckless behavior, 
Okay, so there's something dense. There's a density um, to emotional expression. Um, and then another one is there's a rhyming of ideas that happens in poetry. Okay, a rhyming of ideas. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about someone that rhyming, but let me give you an example of a rhyme that uh, Horace Walpole is known um, at the death of Frederick Lewis. Okay, he's the Prince of Wales. He gave this beautiful six-word poem that I shouldn't even have to look at because it's, it's quite simple. And it went like this. Here lies Fred. He is dead. Okay. Here lies Fred. He is dead. And it's beautiful because it's got alliteration. It's got rhyme. It's got symmetry. It's got a whole bunch of things happening just in, just in six words. So the here and the he go together. The Fred and the dead go together. Okay. All these different things are happening just in these six words. And that is the beauty of poetry. Um, and so there is rhyming that's happening. There's all these different things. And then the other thing that I want to give you, there are limitations t in particular to Hebrew poetry. For instance, I had a friend of mine come to me um, and say, hey, you know what? Shakespeare just sounds way better than, uh, than the Bible, than biblical poetry. It's, it's way prettier, all these different things. And I, I was really angry at first because I thought, you know, that's really unfair to talk about. Um, and then I realized he makes a good point, but it's still unfair because the Bible wasn't written in English, <laughs> okay? The poetry you're reading is a translation. Shakespeare wrote in English, so he could use different conventions and slang and all these different things that uh, Hebrew writers, not, we're, it's going to be com completely lost on us because the Bible was not written in English. And so recognize when you are reading the Bible, and our Bible explaining class will talk about these different things, like these translation issues in the text, um, you are reading, when you're reading the, 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 the Old Testament, you're reading Hebrew, okay? And those verse numbers were not there were not present. Um, and these different titles that you see at the top of the chapter, for instance, at the top of chapter three, it says Job laments his birth. That wasn't there in the original text. In fact, Hebrew is just kind of these strings of letters. There's actually, it's only just consonants. There's no vowels in Hebrew and it's just a string of letters and there aren't many words and it's challenging. It is challenging to read the text and it's challenging to translate it. That's why we have different translations, but it is worth the effort. And so I'm going to, um, I'm going to read. I'm going to read from Job chapter 3, and as I've said, we just finished the first two chapters where we have this grand backstory of what's happening. There is uh, the adversary, Satan, and there's God having this conversation, and a challenge is laid down, and now we have Job's three friends joining him, and I'm going to start now in verse 1, and I'll just read the first 10 verses. <laughs> After this, Job opened his mouth. And cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan, let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. 
because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb nor hide trouble from my eyes. So the first thing you're going to notice upon reading that, this is, a, this is literally and figuratively dark. This is, this is what's happening. Job is, um, it, he is suffering. And you are hearing the voice and the cry of one who is suffering, of one who is in pain, of one who questions his existence itself. And the first thing I want you to notice about the poetry, that the, the aspect of poetry that's in this is this idea called parallelism. Okay, parallelism. And parallelism just means um, you can either rhyme sounds or you can rhyme ideas. When I said the poem, here lies Fred, Fred is dead, Fred and dead rhyme with each other because they have similar sounds. But you can also rhyme ideas. And in Hebrew poetry, because you're not going to see, you're not going to hear a rhyming of sounds in Hebrew poetry because it's a translation, but you will hear the rhyming of ideas. So for instance, in, the, in verse 3, it says, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived. Okay, that, Those two, you have day and night rhyming. You have the idea of uh, the birthday and the conception date as rhyming as well. Those two are rhyming together. And this is not a new thing. I just want to let you know that this idea of rhyming ideas is throughout Scripture. And it doesn't just happen in verses. You have this in verses. Each verse can have kind of a rhyming of ideas in it. Um, but the whole idea of rhyming ideas is throughout Scripture and throughout any good story you have rhyming. So, for instance, I'm not going to talk a lot about it today, but you also have an idea of something called, this is kind of a fancy word, chiasm. Okay, that's spelled C-H-I. ASM, chiasm, and I want to introduce that idea because it's also a type of rhyming. And the way to think about um, how chiasms exist, you, they exist in any different, in any, in any particular um, like unit of scripture, but I want to draw your attention to like the largest chiasm, okay? The Bible itself you can think of as having a chiastic structure because it's easiest to uh, describe it in terms of a uh, in terms of an example. And so a chiasm, the idea is that whatever you start with at the beginning, you also see it appear at the end. So for instance, at the very beginning um, of scripture, in the story, you have the garden. And the garden has a tree, has a tree of life. And there's a river that flows through the garden. And then you have, um, throughout the course of scripture, you have cities. And you have actually mostly bad cities. <laughs> you have bad cities that are rebellious against God. And then you have a Jerusalem which is meant to be a city, a sign of the heavenly city. And then you have corrupt Jerusalem. And at the very end of time, in the book of Revelation, you have a city, but you also have a garden in the middle of the city. And you have a tree in the middle of that garden. And you have a river, you have the tree of life in the middle of the garden. You have a garden, you have a river that flows through it. Okay, so there is a chiasm even in the entire course of scripture where the very beginning shows up at the end. And there's also something in the middle, right? And so we'll, we'll be talking about this structure. It's possible to see chiasms everywhere, but I just, I want to give your attention to, there's a beauty, there's a beauty and there's a, there's a, um, a, a science and a beauty to reading poetry. And chiasm is part of the science, but there's also a, an, art, an artistry that goes with understanding poetry. Um, let me give you another example or another idea of what poetry does. Poetry is about images. I made a reference to um, a wrecking ball. If you read verses 6 and 9, it says, let, That night, let thick darkness seize it. What night? This is, I think this is referring to um, the night of conception, 
right? Because it says the night that uh, on the night that said a man is conceived. This is Job, um, Job coming into existence. Let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. And this is, and I forgot the term. I, I wish I'd written down. But you're giving um, personality traits to something that's inanimate. What was that? Personification. Personification. Thank you, Wendy. <laughs> it's personification, right? Because the night is given characteristics to not rejoice about that night, right? That night cannot rejoice. It doesn't get to be on the calendar. That night shouldn't belong on the calendar. And it's an image, and it's also hyperbole. When I say hyperbole, it's an exaggeration. He doesn't mean literally strike out that day, but there is an emotion behind it. Like, I don't want anything to be, I don't want anything for this day to be remembered. There's something about it that's completely cursed. I don't want anything to do with that day because Job is suffering. He's lost 10 of his children. He is covered, his body is covered with sores, and he is experiencing humiliation and disgrace at this time. So poetry is hyper-focused, and it's not meant to be comprehensive. It actually never pretends to have the final word. It's meant to be experienced, and you're meant to be immersed in it. So you can think of poetry as a language of piercing, okay? It may, again, I said it may describe facts, but it's not factual in any scientific kind of way. And I will also say this about poetry from my own experience. Um, I'd encourage you to read some poetry but I'd actually mostly encourage you to write it. And the reason I encourage you to write it is because poetry is the language of the heart. And when I say heart, I don't just mean emotions. I mean heart in the same way Austin talked about it back in August, where heart is the thoughts and intentions and values and the desire of a person. Okay? It encompasses all those different things. It's not meant to just encompass our emotional life. It's everything that goes behind our emotions. That's what the heart is. And the reason why I don't necessarily, I mean, I will read poetry of famous people, but I don't make a regular habit of it, is because when I read poetry, I'm reading about someone's heart. And the heart of the people that I'm most interested in are those that I want to have a relationship with, okay? The people that I know. And so that's why I encourage you to write poetry, because I want to get to know you through your poems, Okay, and one thing we're doing in our life group is I've asked people to write poetry, and I know it's going to happen. I am confident, Evan Rowan. I am confident that it's going to happen at some point, that there'll be poems written, because I would like to hear and experience your heart. Okay? I'd like to, I would like to experience the lament, this uh, uh, grieving um, that Job is doing, because I see his heart in this text. And so my second point, my, you know, my first was about what poetry is about, this heightened, this dense and heightened expression. But my second point is that poetry invokes an incomplete theology. Okay, my second point. Poetry invokes an incomplete theology. I'm going to skip over now to chapter 4. And now, you know, the whole um, book of Job can be described as a, a dialogue. Okay, it's, it's going back and forth between Job and his friends. Um, and Grace, one of our leaders, described it as a rap battle. Okay, it's a, it's a rap battle. Um, and I think that's a beautiful way to think about it because raps are poems, right? There's, these are poems going back and, f going back and forth. Um, and now Eliphaz, it, his Job's friend, is responding to Job. Okay, now you, let's give attention to what he says. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. 
Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perish? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Okay, I'm going to pause for a second, and I just want to ask you, and I really want, I really want to know. This is an open question. I don't have you know, a particular answer in mind. Um, what's the tone of what I just read? We, we recognize the tone of Job 3, those first 10 verses, that was sadness. What's the tone, the emotional tone happening in Job chapter 4, these first uh, 11 verses or so? <laughs> Can you translate that? Can you translate what that means, Micah? Okay. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I appreciate that. I think disgust is, is a good one. I think disgust is a good word. There's a little bit, um, maybe even contempt, right? There's some contempt of Job, right? Because this is directed at Job. By the way, Job's, um, Job's discussion wasn't directed at Eliphaz, right? That was directed at God. It sounds like directed at God. Actually, it's not even clear who he's directed at. He's just asking questions. He's just lamenting. He's just grieving. But Eliphaz seems specifically to be talking to Job, and there is some disgust or contempt, in his tone, right? He talks about him being in, and you are impatient in verse five. And he asked, he asked Job, is not your fear of God, your confidence, right? And then there is a theology here. Okay. What's a theology? A, tholo- a theology is the study of God, some beliefs about God here in this passage. And the belief about God that's here in this passage is, look, good things happen to those who trust God, right? Um, Good things happen to those who trust God. For example, in verse 7, it says, Remember, who that was innocent ever perish? Or where were the upright cut off? Those who are innocent and upright receive good things. And those who plow iniquity, okay, that's an expression, right? You don't plow iniquity, you do evil things, but it's, a, it's, one, it's, it's an image. And he's saying there, those who do evil receive evil. By the breath of God, they perish, right? So this is... Um, And I'm going to continue. I'm going to skip over to verse 17. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants, he puts no trust. And in his angels, he charges, and his angels, he charges with error. How much more of those who dwell in houses of clay, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and not without wisdom? Okay, so it's a pretty simple concept, and we're going to see this repeated throughout this entire book. Good behavior has good consequences. If you do good things, you'll be rewarded, and bad behavior has bad consequences. You'll be punished for evil. And that is the theology that Eliphaz is proclaiming to Job. And it is true most of the time. (laughs) It is true most of the time. Because here is the majesty and beauty and tragedy of the book of Job, is there are, there are theologies that are incomplete. 
And what Eliphaz is proclaiming is an incomplete theology. He's not giving the entire picture. And guess what? You already know that as the reader. Okay, how do you know that? Because of the first two chapters. You know something that Eliphaz doesn't. You have an insight into God's character and into the whole backstory of the situation about Satan as the accuser, as the adversary, that Eliphaz doesn't. So you already know it's incomplete. But it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just inappropriate because he's, the Eliphaz is missing out on this complete picture of who God is. And so I, what I want to... Um, what I want to propose, and we're going to be continuing to define this word, but that wisdom is knowing how and when theology applies. Okay. One aspect of wisdom is knowing when something is true. Okay. When, when, because there's a context for everything. Every theology has a context and wisdom is knowing which context you're supposed to apply it in. Okay, and I can give so many examples of this, right? There's so many different examples. Um, I just went camping this weekend. Um, there are certain principles for camping that are true most of the time, right? There are certain principles. I'm trying to think of one that's off the top of my head. I wish I, I, I have the examples that I want to use are not super appropriate um, to this setting. So um, I'm trying to think of different examples, but everything has a context, right? Even, even the words that we say, right? Let, let's just take that one. The words that you say have a particular context. The audience that you're speaking them to, the setting that, they're in, that you're in, there's a context, there's a situation in which they apply. And unfortunately for Eliphaz, the context that he has picked to tell Job these things is not appropriate. He's talking past Job because Eliphaz is talking about morality. He's talking about the consequences of morality. What happened to Job had nothing to do with morality. It had nothing to do with behavior, and Eliphaz is talking, um, talking um, around it. They're talking past it. <clears throat> and so what I want to highlight here is something that I think happens really often um, in Christian circles, this tendency to be like Eliphaz. <clears throat> and that is this temptation to complete someone else's theology. Okay, When someone shares something with us, especially if it's something painful. I think we have a temptation to want to complete the rest of what they're saying. Because let's face it, this incomplete theology isn't just with Eliphaz. It's also with Job. Job is saying, look, I wish I were dead. I wish I would never existed. That's not like the greatest thing to think. There's actually some, there some incomplete things about that. And that's what Eliphaz is addressing. But one, there's an arrogance in what Eliphaz is doing in that he thinks he has to complete someone else's theology. And what I would um, caution you and ask you to um, take time and consider that often when we comfort people or attempt to comfort them, and this happened to me recently, that we give in to that temptation to give them the complete picture, to give them an answer. Um, there's a, there's a kind of a, a nerdy book out there um, written in the 80s um, by Douglas Adams, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe. And in book three of that series, it's called Life, the Universe, and Everything. Or there's, there's something called The Ultimate Question of the Life, uh, of life the Universe, and Everything. Um, and there's a supercomputer that these um, really intelligent people build called Deep Thought. 
and it takes him 7.5 million years to come up with the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And the answer he comes up with, I don't think this is spoiling anything, but the answer he comes up with is 42. Okay, the answer is 42. And it's great because there are so many, like you can go on the uh, internet and look at all the different speculations of why 42 and what 42 means, like six times nine, base 13, some really interesting things going on with math um, with that number 42. Um, but I think it's a fast, it's, it's meant to be satirical because this science fiction series is meant to be, a, it's, it's a comedy. Um, it's meant to be satirical how we want answers. We want everything to be able to be encapsulated into this one number. And that's true for almost every aspect of our lives. I mean, I know um, I've had some conversations with people like, hey, Fred, can you, can you preach the gospel um, in your sermons, right? Make sure you, you encapsulate uh, what the gospel says, you know what I mean? And, and put it into like a package, right? Um, and maybe it's 42 or do you know what I mean? Or the cross or something, right? But there is such temptation um, in our culture to be able to have the final word on something, to be able to complete what a theology says. And I think that what the book of Job is, is screaming at us is not so fast. Not so fast. That having a complete picture of God is maybe not something we can quickly aspire to. And maybe not in the need of a moment when someone is suffering and in pain. Maybe our job is not to complete their picture of who God is. Maybe our job is to just be with that person. So let me come back to then what Job is saying. That the poetry of lament creates a vacuum for God to fill. That's my last point. The poetry of lament creates a vacuum for God to fill because it is about incompletion, right? We, it is incomplete. And it's meant to be incomplete. Incomplete is something in its design. Verse 11 of chapter 3. Why did, not, why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest. With kings and councils of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold or filled their houses with silver, or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at, are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. So this is continuing on in the lament of Job about his birth. But there's some things that I would point out to you that aren't actually negative happening here about death. And by the way, I think our first instinct, especially as Christians, when we hear about death is to go, well, Jesus was raised. <laughs> you know, Jesus came back to life. Death is always temporary. Like that's our first response. And yes, that is correct. <laughs> that is a correct statement. Yes, Jesus is raised. Yes, the tomb is empty. And yet, can we take a moment and appreciate there actually are some good things that are happening for Job, even as he imagines death. What are some of those good things? I see three. There's rest, and rest is repeated. Okay, Rest is repeated in verse 13 and then in 17. 
there's rest for those who are dead. That's why um, they talk about resting place, right? We use that terminology when we talk about death. Um, that is a form of rest. All the things that have been, all the suffering that you've experienced, it goes away um, when, you, when you die. And that's an aspect of rest. A second thing, a word that I hear, that I see here in verse 13 is quiet. No one bothers those who are dead. It's quiet. <laughs> and then the last thing, this is in verse 19, actually verse 18 and 19. There's something interesting going on in 18 and 19 where you have prisoners, right? Who are at ease together. So if you've experienced being in prison, I haven't. Um, there's an ease because when you're dead as a prisoner, you no longer hear the voice of the, of the taskmaster. And it says there, the small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Like, this is the place that if you've experienced slavery, it is in death that ex you experience freedom. So there's three ideas that are happening that Job is pointing to about death. That it is rest, that it is quietness, and that it is freedom. And it's not a complete theology. I don't want to pretend that it's complete in any way. And yet there's something significant about what Job is imagining. He's saying, look, there's something beautiful, okay, about death, about the freedom that comes with death, about the rest that comes with death, and about the quietness. And guess what? As Christians, you know what? We can say that too. Because the death of Christ actually means all those things for us as well. It means quietness. It means rest. It means freedom, okay? Because you die to something. And so my main point today is to recognize that in our journey with God, having incomplete thoughts is actually desirable. Okay, and when I say incomplete, you don't have to give God a complete theology. You can come to him in rawness and you can say, hey, God, why is this world fractured and fragmented? You can give God an incomplete theology thought. Because he wants that from us. He wants that kind of rawness and honesty. And so what we're going to do um, after communion, after we sing some songs, is what I'd like to do is have a time where we do a similar popcorn prayer time as we did earlier. Except instead of thanking God, we would ask him some questions. Job asked questions, and you can argue they're rhetorical questions, you know, they're not, they're not actually meant to be answered. For example, verse 11 says, why did, I not, why did I not die at birth? I'm not sure that's actually meant to have an answer, but there's a cry in that. There's a heart expression in that. Um, it says, why did the knees receive me? There's a, there's a cry in there. In verse 20, why is light given to him who is in misery? There are cries with that. And what I'd ask you to do is to formulate your own cry, okay? Your own question and again, it can be a question that you would like God to answer or you just like to voice. And I believe that there is a power that the Spirit of God moves in the asking of questions. Not just, I think we often think that God only moves in the answering. But I think one of the things that the book of Job is wanting to help us see is that there is a Spirit, that the Spirit moves even in the asking. That God moves even in the asking. Um, and then I just want to give some further thought to how you think about um, talking with God, how you think about prayer. Some of you I know keep journals, and I'd encourage you, and we'll be talking about journaling as we, as we go through this, um, but I'd encourage you 
when you have questions about God, um, when you experience painful moments, I'd encourage you to write it down. Okay, to write it down. Because I think God wants to hear those. And I think actually he wants us to remember them. And if the book of Job is giving us a message about suffering, it's that it, uh, it is, there is a freedom to express ourselves to God. And a lot, a lot of those it's meant for us to remember also. God has given us this book to teach us to suffer well. And part of suffering well is to remember those moments of suffering. And I think for a lot of us, we want to cast those out of our mind and, and head and not think about them anymore and cast them away. But there's something important about remembering this. This has been given for, to us for a purpose. So with that, let me pray for us. God, would you manifest courage in us today to sit with what is incomplete, recognizing that in the moment of where we share a thought, an uncensored thought before you, that you accept us and you accept the word, not as the final word, but as an opportunity and an invitation for your spirit to come in. And so, Lord, as we practice, maybe for some of us the first time, at expressing grief, as asking questions of you directly, Lord, would we have the confidence that you hear, that you understand, that you accept, and that you do not have to complete our view, not at this time, but you accept us and you want to hear the questions. Thank you that um, death is not the end. Thank you that death gives an opportunity for you to work. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, Katie's going to be passing out um, the communion elements, and we are going to do a practice now where we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus by participating in the bread and the cup. And as we've mentioned before, this ritual is meant for followers of Jesus who recognize the significance of what Jesus' body, crucified on our behalf, means, and what the shedding of his blood means for us also, which is the forgiveness of sin. And so would you take out um, the wafer? And Katie, could I get one too? <laughs> um, as you take out the wafer... Would we also recognize that this is not just a, a ceremony that's meant to be done um, in isolation. It's something we do as a community because when Jesus practiced this, um, he intended his disciples to remember him together. And in doing so, remember that the, the body Jesus died for are the, are the people who are sitting around you. Okay, and Paul talks about that in Corinthians. And so would you just take a moment as you look at the wafer but all, to also recognize and look around, these are the people Jesus died for that these are the people his body was given for and his blood was shed. Would we partake together with a thankful heart? And the other image that Jesus gave us is the cup, which represents the blood that was shed on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins. And as Jocelyn was mentioning earlier, this is the reason we are able 
to approach the throne of God. We are able to come into his holiness because of what he accomplished. Let's partake together. God, thank you for the bread and the cup, the bread that provides sustenance, the blood that covers us from our sins. Lord, as we um, are so impatient to have a final word, God, would we know that the word from you is the one that ultimately sustains. We trust you. We praise you. In your name, amen.